So last time, we finished up by playing the game of Nim. And you remember, I hope, that the game of Nim was a game where there was two piles of, of stones uh, we, we made do with lines on the board. And the winner was the person who, who picked up the last stone. Remember, you had to pick piles. And I, I want to use the game of Nim to, to tr uh, make a transition here. So what we'd pointed out about the game of Nim was it illustrated very nicely for us that uh, games can have first mover advantages or they can have second mover advantages. A very small change in the game, essentially uh, a very small change in where we started from, could switch a game from a game with a first mover advantage to a game with a second mover advantage. All right? Now today, I want to make, just draw a, a slightly grander lesson out of that game. So not only was it the case that, that, that the game sometimes has first mover advantages and sometimes has second mover advantages, but moreover, we could tell when it had a first mover advantage, and we could tell when it had a second mover advantage. Is that right? When we actually looked at the initial setup of those stones, we knew immediately that's a game in which player one is going to win, or alternatively, we knew immediately that's a game in which player two is going to win. All right? Now, it turns out that that idea is very general and actually uh, has a name attached to it, uh, and that name is Zamillo. So today we'll start off by talking about a theorem due to a guy called Zamillo. And the idea of this theorem is this. We're going to look at games more general than just Nim, and we're going to ask the question, uh, under what circumstances would you know about a game, either that player one, the person who goes first, can force a win, or that player two can force a win, or will allow a third possibility, which is it's going to be a tie. All right? So here's the theorem. Suppose there are two players in this game, like the games we looked at last time. And suppose, I won't define this formally now, but suppose the game is a game of imperfect uh, sorry, of perfect information. So what do I mean by perfect information? I'll define this later on in the class. But for now, all I mean is that whenever a, player, uh, whenever a player has its turn to move, that player knows exactly what has happened prior in the game. So for example, all these sequential move games we've been looking at are moves of perfect information. When I get to move, I know exactly what you did yesterday. I know what I did the day before yesterday, and so on. All right, so it's a game of perfect information. I'm going to assume that the game has a finite number of nodes. So two things here. It can't go on forever, this game. And also, there's no point at which it branches in an infinite way. All right, so there's a finite number of nodes. And we'll assume that the game has three possible outcomes. And actually, there's a more general version of this theorem, but this will do for now. The three possible outcomes are either a win for player one, so I'll call it W sub one, or a loss for player one, which is obviously a win for player two, or a tie. All right, so the game, like Nim last time, we only had two outcomes, so here we're going to go up to three outcomes, or, uh, three or three or fewer outcomes, I should say. All right, so these are the conditions, and here's the result. So I, I said three, it, it could be three, but it could also be two here. I'm just allowing for three. One is trivial. All right, so under these conditions, the following is true. Either player one can force a win. So either it's the case 
that this game is a game that if player one plays as well as they can, they're going to win the game. All right, no matter what player two does. Or two, uh, sorry, or one can at least force a tie. All right, which means player one can play in such a way that they can assure themselves of a tie regardless of what player two does. Or it could be a game in which two can force a loss on one. All right, so a win for one, this is. All right? All right? So this theorem, when you first look at it, it doesn't seem to say very much. When you're staring at this thing, you might think that we, we, we already knew that we're looking at games that only have three possible outcomes, win, loss, or tie. All right? So it doesn't seem so surprising if you look at this theorem. It says, well, you're going to end up with a win or a loss or a tie. Right? But that's not quite what the theorem says. Right? The theorem says not only are you going to end up there, we knew that already, but, but the games divide themselves, games of these forms divide themselves into those games in which player one has a way of winning regardless of what player two does. Right? Or games in which player one has a way of forcing a tie regardless of what player, one does, player two does. Or player two has a way of winning, regardless of what player one does. Right? So these games all have a solution. Let's just go back to NIM to illustrate the point. All right? So in NIM, uh, actually, there's no tie, so we can forget the middle of these. And in NIM, under certain circumstances, it is the case that player one can force a win. Who remembers what the case was for when player one can force a win? Anybody? Some people who played last time? No? Yes, uh, Ali, there's some, somebody here? Sh yeah, sh sh shout it out. Okay. Ensuring that the piles are equal for the other player. All right, so, so if, the, if the piles start unequal, if the piles start unequal, then player one can actually force a win. So in NIM, in NIM, if the piles are unequal at the start, then one can force a win. It really doesn't matter what two does, two is toast. All right? Or the alternative case is the piles are equal at the start, and if they're equal at the start, then it's player one who's toast. Right? Player two is going to be able to force a loss on one. So two can force a loss on one, i.e. a win for player two. All right? Does everyone remember that from last time? Yeah? Don't you know, it's, it's just before the weekend, it shouldn't be so far long ago. All right? So, that, so this, this theorem applies to all games of this form. So what games are of this form? Let's think of some other examples. So one example is tic-tac-toe. All right, everyone know the rules of tic-tac-toe? In England, we call it noughts and crosses, but you guys call it tic-tac-toe, is that right? right? Everyone know what tic-tac-toe is? Yeah? So in tic-tac-toe, uh, which, which category is tic-tac-toe? Is it a game which player one can force a win? Or is it a category in which player one can only force a tie? Or is it a category in which you'd rather go second and player two can force, uh, force a win for player two or a loss for player one? Which is tic-tac-toe? Let's have a show of hands here. Who thinks tic-tac-toe is a game which player one can force a win? Who thinks tic-tac-toe is a game which, is, which player one can only force a tie? And who thinks player, one, uh, who thinks player two is going to win? Yeah, that you're, most of you are right. It's a, game, it's a game in which, if people play correctly, then it'll turn out to be a tie. All right, so tic-tac-toe 
TTT tic-tac-toe is a game that leads to a tie. Right? Player one can still make a mistake, in which case they can lose. Player two can make a mistake, in which case they would lose. But there is a way of playing that forces a tie. All right? So these are fairly simple games. Let's talk about more complicated games. So what about the game of checkers? Right, so the game of checkers meets these conditions. It's a two-player game. You always know all the moves prior to your move. It's finite. All right, there's some rules and checkers that prevent it going on forever. And there are two or three outcomes. I guess there's a third outcome if you get into a cycle you could tie. Right, so checkers is, uh, fits all these descriptions. And what this theorem tells us is that checkers has a solution. Right? I'm not sure I know what that solution is, or I think actually somebody did compute it quite recently, uh, even in the last few months. I just forgot to Google it this morning to remind myself. But what, what this theorem tells us, even before those people have computed it, checkers has a solution. All right? Let's be a bit more ambitious. What about chess? So chess meets this description. Right? Chess is a two-player game. Everybody knows all the moves before them. It's sequential. All right? It has finite number of moves. It's a very large number, but it is finite. All right? And it has three possible outcomes, a win, a loss, or a tie. Let's be careful. The reason it's finite is that if you cycle, I forget what it is, three times, then the, then the game is declared a draw, declared a tie. All right? So what's this theorem telling us? It's telling us that there is a way to solve chess. It tells us there is a way to solve chess. Chess has a solution. Right? We don't know what that solution is. It could be that solution is that player one who's the player with the white, uh, the, the white pieces, can force a win. It could be that player one can only force a tie, and it could even be that player two can force a win. Right? We don't know which it is, but there is a solution. Right? There's a catch to this theorem. What's the catch? The catch is it doesn't actually tell us, this theorem is not going to tell us what that solution is. It doesn't tell us how to play. This theorem, in and of itself, doesn't tell us how to play chess. It just says there is a way to play chess. All right. All right. So we're going to try and prove this. We don't often do proofs in class, but the reason I want to prove this particular one is because I think the proof is instructive as part of, it, of sort of QR at Yale. All right. So here's another example here, and some other examples you could think of, of chess as being the most dramatic example. All right. All right, so the reason I want to actually spend some time proving this today is because we're going to prove it by induction. We're going to prove it by induction. All right, and I'm going to sketch the proof. I'm not going to go through every possible step, but I want, I want to give people here a feeling for what a proof by induction looks like. And the reason for that is like, my guess is, well, let's find out. How many of you have seen a proof by induction before? And we have not. Right? So for those who haven't, I think it's a good thing in life, at one point in your life, to see a proof by induction. And for those who have, my guess is you saw it in some awful math class in, uh, in high school, and it just went whoosh over your you know, it didn't take over your head, but it kind of, the excitement of it doesn't catch on. I'm hoping to make that this is a, a context where it might appeal. All right. So proof by induction. We're going to prove this by induction on the maximum length of the game. And we'll call that n. We'll call n the maximum length of the game. So what do I mean by this? If I write down a tree, 
I can always look at all the paths from the beginning of the tree all the way through to the end of the tree. I should do that your way, from the beginning of the tree all the way through to the end of the tree. And I'm going to look at the path in that, in that particular tree that has the largest length. Right? And I'll call that the length of the game, the maximum length of the game. All right? So we're going to do induction on the maximum length of the game. All right? So how do we start a proof by induction? Let's remind ourselves, those people who've seen them before, we're going to prove that this theorem is true, the claim in the theorem is true for the easy case when the game is only one move long. All right, that's the first step. And then we're going to try and show that if it's true for all games of length less than or equal to n, whatever n is, then it must therefore be true for games of length n plus 1. Right, that's, the two, that's the way you do a proof by induction. Right, so let's just see how that works in practice. All right, so start with the easy step, and we'll do it in some detail, more detail than you really need to in a math class. So if n equals 1, what do these games look like? Well, let's look at some examples here. So here's a, I claim it's pretty trivial if n is equal to 1, but let's do it anyway. All right, so the game might look like this. Uh, player 1 is going to move. Here's player 1 moving. The game is only length one, so player one is the only player who ever gets to move. So the game might look like, like this. And let's put in a fifth branch. It might look like this. All right? And at the end of this game, rather than putting payoffs, let me just put the outcome. So the outcome must either be a win or a tie or a loss. So suppose it looks like this. Suppose it's a win, or here we could have a tie, or here we could have a win again, or here we could have a loss, and here we could have a tie. All right? So in this particular game, in this particular game, uh, I claim it's pretty clear this game has a solution. It's pretty clear uh, what one should do. All right? What should one do? One should pick one of her choices that leads to a win. To be careful, I'll put one in here just to distinguish uh, who it is who's actually winning and losing. All right? So in this, in this game, I claim that this game has a pretty obvious solution. Either player one is going to choose this branch that leads to a win, or this branch that leads to a win. And either way, player one is going to win. Right? Is that obvious? It's kind of, so obvious it's kind of painful. All right? So I claim this game, we can actually replace this first node with what's going to happen, which is player one's going to win. Is that right? That was easy. Let's look at a different example. We'll do three. All right, so here's a, another possible example. And this, again, player one is going to move here. And this time, the possible outcomes are a tie or a loss or a loss. All right, once again, it's a one-player game. This time, he has three choices. And the three choices lead to a tie or he loses. So I claim, once again, this is simple. What player one should do is what? Choose the tie, since there's no way of winning. But in that case, he can actually force it. He can actually uh, choose the tie, in which case he's going to tie. So this game has a solution called choose the tie. And again, we could replace the first node of the game with what's actually going to happen, which is a tie. Everyone happy? Right, and there's one other possibility, I guess. The other possibility is that here player one has a lot of choices, maybe, maybe four choices in this case. Once again, player one is going to move, but in each case, Unfortunately for player one, in each case, the outcome is that player one loses. Right? So this is a game in which player one is going to lose no matter what they do. Once again, it has a solution. The solution is player one is toast and is going to lose. 
all right? So I claim this has really captured all the possibilities of games of length one. All right, I mean, you could, you could imagine that there could be more branches on them, but basically there are these three possibilities. Either it's the case that one of those branches leads to a win, in which case the solution is player one wins, or it's the case that, that none of the branches have wins in them, but one of them has a tie, in which case player one's going to tie, or it's the case that all the branches have loss in them, in which case player one's going to lose. All right, so I claim I'm, I'm done for, for games of length one. Everyone okay? So that step is deceptively easy, but there it is. All right, now we do the inductive step, the big step. All right, what we're going to do is we're going to assume that the statement of the theorem, which I've now hidden, unfortunately, let me, let me unhive it, if I can. It's not going to be easy. All right. Is it now visible? Good. So now let's assume that the statement of this theorem is true for all games length less than, to, less than or equal to n. All right, suppose that's the case. Suppose the claim is true for all games of this type of length less than or equal to some n. All right, what we need to show is, what we're going to try and show, is therefore it will be true for all games of length n plus 1. What we want to show is, we claim, therefore, therefore, it will be true for games of length n plus 1. Right, that's the key step in inductive proofs. All right, so how are we going to do that? Well, let's have a look at a game of length n plus 1. All right, now obviously, I can't use thousands here, so let me, let me choose some relatively small numbers, but the idea will go through. So let's have a look at a game. All right, so here's a game in which player 1 moves first, player 2 moves second, Let's suppose if player two does this, then one only has little choice here. Uh, up here, then one has a more complicated choice. And perhaps two could move again. One, two, okay. All right, so this is quite a complicated little game up here. And down here, let's make it a little bit less complicated. Here, the game looks like this and then comes to an end. All right, so the tree looks like this. I haven't put the end, I haven't put the outcomes on it, but the tree looks like this. All right? So how long is this tree, first of all? Well, I claim that the longest path in this tree from the beginning to the end has four steps. Let's just check. All right. So one, two, three, four. That's what I claim is the longest, the longest path. Any path going down this way only has three moves in it. All right. So this is a game of length four. All right. All right, this is a game of length four. So, so we can apply it to our claim. Let's assume that the theorem holds for all trees length three or fewer, so that n plus one is four, for the purpose of our example. All right? All right, so here's in this example, in this example, I don't want to put it here, let's put it here. In this example, n equals three, so that n plus one equals 4. 
All right, everyone happy with this in, this in the example? All right. Now, what I want to observe about this is the following. Contained in this n plus 1, or game of length 4, are some smaller games. You could think of them as sub-games. They're games within the game. Is that right? So let's have a look. I claim, in particular, let's draw around them in pink. There's a game here that follows player one choosing up. And there's a game here that follows player one choosing down. Is that right? All right. And I, so, okay, so these are both games. All right. And what do we have here? So this little game in here, the game in the top circle, the game that follows player one moving up, that's a game, and it has a length. Right? So this little thing is a game. This is a game. And I'm going to call it a sub-game. Some jargon we'll be getting used to later on in the semester. It's a game within the game. But it's basically a game. This is a sub-game. And this is a sub-game following one choosing up. Let's put up in here. Following up. And I claim that this game has a length. This subgame has a length. So we knew that we started from a game of length four. We've taken one of the moves. And let's make sure this is actually a game of length three. Right? So if, we, if the game started here, this would be a game of length three because you could go one, two, three moves. Is that right? So this is a game of length three. Right? So this is a subgame following one choosing up, and it, the subgame, has length three. All right? And down here, down here, this is also a subgame. It's a game that follows player one choosing down. Following one choosing down. And this little subgame has length. Now here we have to be a little bit careful. You might think that since we started from a game of length four, after the first move, we must be in a move of game of length three. But actually that's not true. And if we look carefully, we'll notice that this game down here, the game starting here, uh, actually uh, isn't of length three, it's of length two. Is that right? So even though we started from a game of length four, by going this way, we put ourselves into a game of length two. Is that right? Right, so one, two, or one, two, or whatever. All right? So it has length two. Okay. All right. So in this example, n is three, and n plus one is four, and our, our assumption, our induction assumption, is what? We've assumed that the claim of the theorem holds for all games less than or equal to n, which in this case means less than or equal to 3. All right? So what does that tell us? That, tell us, that tells us, by our assumption, by our assumption, this game, which I've put a pink circle around on the top, this is a game of length 3, this game has a solution. Right, it must have a solution because it's of length, it's of length three or less. All right? So 
by the induction hypothesis, as it's called, by the induction hypothesis. This is a technical term, but what's the induction hypothesis? It's this thing. By the assumption that we made, this game has a solution. This game has a solution. Right? It's a game of length 3. 3 is less than or equal to n in this case, so this game must have a solution. Now, I don't immediately know by staring at it what it is, but let's suppose it was w. You know, say it was w. All right? And the game down below, this is also a game, and it's a game of length 2, but 2 is less than 3 as well. 2 is less than or equal to 3. So this game also has a solution. This game also, by the same assumption, by the same assumption, has a solution. So its solution is, say, I don't know, maybe it's L. All right? So what does that mean to say that these games have solutions? In this case, we're going to assume W is this one and L is this one. Right? What does it mean? It means that we could, just as we did with the games up there, we could put the solution at the beginning of the game. We know that if we get into this game, we're going to get the solution of this game. And we know if we get into this game, we're going to get the solution of this game. All right? So we can replace this one with its solution, which by assumption was W, and this one by its solution, which by assumption was L. And here I want to be really careful. I need to keep track of which person it is it's a win or a loss for. So this was a win for player one, hence it was a loss for player two. And this was a loss for player one, hence it was a win for player two. All right? All right, so these games... Each of them have some solution. In this case, I've written down the solutions as W or L. All right. So now what can we do? Let me just bring down this board again. I can translate this game into a very simple game. So I'm going to translate it up here. So this game can be translated as follows. Player one moves. If he goes up, then he hits a W. And if he goes down, he hits a loss. All right? So in this particular example, player one is effectively choosing between going up and finding himself in a game which has a solution, and the solution is he wins it, or going down and finding himself in a game which has a solution, and the solution is he's toast. All right? But that's what? That's a one-move game. That's a one-move game. So we know this has a solution. In particular, he's going to choose up. Right? This one has a solution. All right? This has a solution. It is a game of length one. So what do we do? All right, somewhat schematically, we took a game of length n plus 1. In this case, that was 4. And we pointed out 
that once player one has made her first move in this game, we are in a game, or in a sub-game if you like, that has length less than four. It could be three, it could be two, whatever. Whatever, whatever sub-game we're in, by assumption, that game has a solution. So it's really effectively, player one is choosing between going into a game with solution win or going into a game with solution loss. And if there were 15 other sub-games here, each one would have a solution. And each one, player one would be able to associate that solution with what he's going to get, what she's going to get. All right? So I claim that if it, in fact, is true that each of these sub-games of length three or less had a solution, then the game of length four must have a solution, which is what? It's the solution which is player one should pick the best sub-game. All right. People convinced by that step? People looking slightly um, deer in the headlamps now. So let me just say it again. All right. All right. We started by assuming that all games of length three or less, or n or less, have a solution. We pointed out that any game that has length n plus 1 can be thought of as an initial move by player 1 followed by a game of length n or less. n or fewer, I should say. All right? Each of those games of n or fewer uh, steps has a solution. So player 1 is just going to choose the game that has the best solution for her, and we're done. Right? In this particular example, player 1 is going to choose up. And therefore, the solution to this parent game is, play is player one wins. All right. Now, the hard step, I think, in, in proofs by induction is realizing that you're done. So I claim we're now done. Why are we done? Well, we know, that was pretty easy, that all games of length one have a solution. That was pretty trivial. And we've shown that if any game of length uh, n or fewer has a solution, then games of n plus 1 have a solution. So now let's see how we can proceed. We know that games of length 1 have a solution, so let's consider games of length 2. Right? Games of length 2, are, do games of length 2 have a solution? Well, let's set n equal to 1. We know, that, we know that if games of length 1 have a solution, then any game of length 2 can be thought of as an initial step followed by a game of length one. But that has a solution. So therefore, games of length two have a solution. But now let's think of games of length three. All right, we've shown that games of length one have a solution and games of length two have a solution. Right? Any game of length three can be, can be thought of as a game uh, in which there's an initial step followed by either a game of length one or a game of length two, each of which have a solution. So once again, a game, a game of length three has a solution and so on. All right? So games of induction, they work by building up on the length of the game, and we're ending up knowing that we're done. All right, for those people who've never seen a proof by induction, don't worry, I'm not going to test you on a proof and induction on the, uh, on, the, uh, uh, um, on the exam. I just want you to see one once. And let's all take a deep breath and try and digest this a little bit by playing a game. All right, so I'll leave it up there. I'll leave it up there so you can stare at it. I want it down again later. All right. And let's try and actually play a game and see if we can actually throw any light on this. 
All right, so I'm, I'm going to pick out volunteers like I did last time. But first of all, let me tell you what the game is. So once again, I'm going to, I'm going to have rocks in this game. And once again, I'm going to approximate those rocks with marks on the blackboard. All right, so here's an example. And the example is this. The game involves an array of rocks. So here the array has one, two, three, four, five rows and three columns. So the rocks are not arranged as they were before in piles, but rather in a sort of pretty array. I actually made it more even, but this is one, two, three, four, five rows and one, two, three columns. Just in this example. Right, but in general, in general, there's an array of rocks, n times m. All right. And we're going to play sequentially with the players. And the way that the, the, way the, the game is going to work is this. This is meant to be in this row. The way the, work's gonna, the, the, the way the game's going to work is when it's your turn to move, you have to point to one of these rocks. And whichever rock you point to, I will remove, I will delete that rock and all the rocks that lie above or to the right of it, all the rocks that lie to the northeast of it. So for example, if you pointed to this rock, right, then I will remove this rock and also this one, this one, and this one. Right? If the next person comes along and chooses this one, then I will remove this one and also that one. Okay, everyone understand? All right, and the game is the game is lost. Let's be clear. This is important. The game is lost by the person who ends up taking the last rock. The loser is the person who ends up removing the last rock. All right. Do I have some volunteers? Can I volunteer people one? How about the guy with the uh, white t-shirt with the yellow on there? All right, okay, can come on up front. All right, and uh, who else can I volunteer? Everyone's looking away from me, uh, desperately looking away from me. Uh, okay, how about the guy with the Yale sweatshirt on, the Yale, uh, yeah, the Yale football sweatshirt on, okay? All right, so come on up. Your name is, I should get a, let me get a mic up here. Thank you. Great. Your name is? Noah. Noah. And your name is? Quran. Say to the mic. So Quran. Quran. Okay. So Noah and Quran are our players. All right. Everyone understand the rules? You understand the rules? Yeah? All right. So why don't we make, let Noah go first. So Noah, which rock are you going to remove? Remember, the last rock loses. That one? That one. Okay. So Noah chose this one. So I'm going to remove this one and the one above it. All the rocks to the north and east of it are, are deleted. No. Wait, wait, that, that means you, 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 you know, last rock loses, okay? Last, last rock, rock lo oh. uh, okay, okay. <laughs> okay, okay, good, all right. So, all right. That one. That one, okay. So now we have an L shape. That one. All right. 
That one. That one, okay, okay, okay. All right, so we're, so we're done, all right, all right, okay. Everyone understand how that works? All right, round of applause for our players, please. All right, thank you. Let me get two more volunteers. Now everyone's, you know, these, these guys had the hard job. They had to figure it out cold. Two more volunteers. Oh, I don't have to volunteer. This is, yeah, oh, yeah there's somebody volunteering. You're volunteering? Great. I have one volunteer. You can pick an opponent if you like. There you go. Okay, thank you. Uh, your name, uh, well, let's just wait till the mics are here. So your name is? Peter. Peter. And your name is Justin. Justin, all right. All right, let me put some, a new array up here. Thanks, Peter. <laughs> all right, so let's put a new array up here. This time, let's make it, it doesn't have to be, oh, it doesn't, so let's make it this time a little bit more complicated. So we'll have five, uh, let's have four rows and five columns this time. All right, so this time, okay, so last time, I, last time I had five rows and three columns, and this time I have four rows and five columns. Four rows and five columns. All right, uh, away you go. You move out the way. Why don't you stand a bit nearer the board, make it a little easier for people to see what's going on. There you go, all right, so, uh, Peter, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Um, that one, okay, so this one goes, which means, which means uh, all of these go as well. All right. Anyone got any advice from the floor? Anyone want to shout things out? Not too loud, right? I'll try going here. In there. Okay, well, we're back to our L shape again. Here. Ah! <laughs> all, right. <laughs> all right, now people can see what's going on. All right, all right. <laughs> I'll go here and speed it up. <laughs> all right, okay, all right, all right, thank you. All right, so a round of applause again. All right, thank you guys. So here's what I claim about this game. First, I mean, this isn't a formal claim, this is a lot harder than the game we played last time, right? Everyone convinced by that, all right? So here's gonna be uh, an exercise. Uh, I'll set it as a challenge. I may even put it formally on the problem set this week. But if, 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 let me just say, if I do put this on the problem set this week, uh, I don't expect you all to solve it, all right? If I do put it on the problem set, it's an optional problem, all right? But here's the challenge. The challenge is, I, I claim, oh, well, I know from Zermelo's theorem that no matter what n is, and no matter what m is, this game has a solution, right? So Zermelo's theorem tells us this game has a solution. Now notice it could have a different solution depending on the n and the m, depending on how many rows and how many columns. Is that right? So depending on n and m, each such game has a solution. Is that right? Is that right? 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 So which could depend. could depend on n and on m, on the number of rows and columns. So just as in NIM, it depended on how those piles started out. Yeah. All right? So what's going to be the homework assignment? Find the solution. Find the solution. Homework. 
what is the solution? All right? So I claim, let me give you a hint, I claim it is useful to remember that there is a solution. All right? It turns out to be useful to remember. That wasn't much of a hint. You knew that already, but then I just emphasize that. Okay. Okay, so I want to do a bit of a transition now away from these games like chess and like checkers and like this game with the rocks or nim. And I want to be a little bit formal for a while. All right, so one that we haven't done for a while, actually really since the midterm, is write down some formal definitions. So I'm going to do that now. I want at least one of these boards back. So as I warned very early in the class, there are some points of the day when we have to stop and do some work, and the next 20 minutes or so is such a point. All right. So, okay, what is this? This is formal stuff. And the first thing I want to do is I want to give you a formal definition of something I've already mentioned today. And that's the idea of perfect inf information. So what we've been looking at really since the midterm are games of perfect information. So a game of perfect information, a game of perfect information is one in which at every node, or at each node, at each node in the game, the player whose turn it is to move at that node player whose turn it is to move knows which node she is at. All right, so it's a very simple idea. Like every game we've seen since the midterm has this property. When you're playing this game, you know where you are. You know where you are. So you know which node you're at, you know what your, what's, what, what, uh, you know what your choices are, and that, what that means implicitly is she must know how she got there. All right, so the whole history of the game is observed by everybody. I'm, I'm, when I get to move, I know what you did yesterday, I know what I did the day before yesterday. If I'm playing with a third person, I know what they did the day before that. All right, so a very simple idea, but it turns out to be an idea that actually allows us to, uh, very simple idea, you know, to, to use things like backward induction very simply. All right, now so far, all we've been doing is thinking about such games, uh, games like perfect competition, or okay, sorry, games like uh, competition, quantity competition between firms, or games like the games where we were setting up incentives, or games like NIM, and we've basically been solving these games by backward induction. 
rather informally. Right? What I want to add in now is the notion of a strategy in these games. Right? So when we, had, when we had simultaneous move games, strategies were really unproblematic. Right? We, it was obvious what strategies were. But when we have games which are sequential that go on over, over a period of time and information is emerging over a period of time, we need to be a little careful what we mean by a strategy. All right? So what I want to do is I want to define a pure strategy, at least, as follows. So a pure strategy, a pure strategy for player I in a game of perfect information So in the games we've been talking about, games which we can represent by trees, is what? It's a complete, it's a complete, it's a complete plan, it's a complete plan of action. So in other words, what it does is it specifies which action I should take should take. Let's not make it should take, let's say will take. Will take at each of I's nodes. Each of I's decision nodes. So when you first read this definition, it seems completely uninteresting and unproblematic. A pure strategy for player I just tells you in this game, whenever you might be called upon to move, it tells you how you're going to move. Right? So you're going to move three times in the game. It tells you how you're going to move the first time. It tells you how you're going to move the second time. And it tells you how you're going to move the third time. All right? All right. So, so far, none of this seems difficult. But actually, it's a bit more difficult than it looks. So let's have a look. What I want to do is I want to look at an example. And this example, I'm hoping, is going to illustrate some subtleties about this definition. So here's an example. In this example, player one moves first, and they can choose in or out. Or if you like, let's call it up or down, since that's the way we've drawn it. So they can choose down or up. And I'll use capital letters U and D. Then player, if player chooses up, then player two gets to move, and player two can choose left or right. And if player one moves up, followed by player two choosing left, then player one gets to move, in which case player one can move up or down. I'll use little letters this time, little u and d. Right? Let's put some payoffs in this game. So the payoffs are 1, 0 here, 0, 2 here, 3, 1 here, and 2, 4 all right. 
So on paper, on, it's on the board, when you first look at it, this is a perfectly simple game. It's just like many of the games we've been looking at since the midterm. It has a tree. We could analyze it by backward induction. In a moment, we will analyze it by backward induction. All right? But what, what I want to do first is I want to say, what are the strategies in this game? All right? So let's start with player two, since it's easier. Player two's strategies here are what? Well, pretty simple. Player two's strategies are, player two only has one decision node. Here's player two's decision node. Right? And the strategy has to tell player two what he's going to do at that decision node. So there's only two choices, left or right. So player two's strategies are either left or right. Okay. Notice, however, already one slight subtlety here. Player two may never get to make this choice. All right? So player two is choosing left or right, but player two may not ever get to make, make this choice. In particular, if one chose down, it's really irrelevant whether player two has chosen left or right. right? Nevertheless, a strategy has to specify what player two would do were he called upon to make that move. All right? Now let's look at player one strategies. So what are player one strategies in this game? What are player one strategies? Any takers? No want to guess? So I claim it's tempting, it's tempting, but it turns out to be wrong to say that player one has three strategies here. It's tempting to say Either player one moves down, in which case we're done, or player one moves up, in which case at some later date she may be called upon to choose up or down again. Right? So it's very tempting to think that player one has just three strategies here. Down, in which case we're done, or up, followed by either up or down, depending on what uh, 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 sorry, uh, uh, followed by either up or down if she's reached at that point. Right? But actually, if we follow this definition carefully, we notice that player one actually has four strategies here. So let me say what they are, and you'll see why it's a little odd. So here's one of the strategies we talked about, up followed by up. And here's another one we talked about, up followed by down. But I claim there are two others down followed by up, and down followed by down. Right? So what's a little weird about this? What's weird is we know perfectly well that if player one chooses down, she's not going to get to make the choice, the second choice, up or down. But nevertheless, the strategy has to tell us what she would do at every node regardless of whether that node actually is reached by that strategy. Let me say it again. The strategy has to tell you what player one would do at that node, regardless of whether that node is actually reached by playing that strategy. Right? It's a little weird, right? There's a bit of redundancy here. It's a bit redundant. All right. 
Now, why? Well, we'll see why in a second. Let's first of all consider uh, what, how this game will be played according to backward induction. All right, so how do we play this game according to backward induction? Where do we start? Shouldn't be a trick question, right? Where, where do we start the game according to backward induction? At the end, okay. So the end here is player one. And player one will choose here to go down. Is that right? Because three is bigger than two. So if we roll back to player two's move, player two, if she chooses left, she knows it should be followed by player one going down, in which case she'll get one. But if she chooses right, she'll get two. So player two will choose right. All right, so player one, so player one here, if she chooses up, then player two will choose right, and player one will get zero. And if she chooses down, she'll get one. So player one will choose down. All right, so backward induction suggests that player one will choose down, and followed by player two, if player two did get to move, she'd choose right. Followed by player one, if she did get to move again, choosing down again. All right, notice that backward induction had to tell us what player two would have done had she got to move. And backward induction had to consider what player two would think that player one would have done were player one to get to move again. So to do backward induction, player one has to ask herself what player two is going to do, and player two has to therefore ask herself what player one would have done, which means player one has to ask herself what player two thinks player one would have done, which means we actually needed to say what player one did over here. Let me say it again. So backward induction here tells us that player one chooses down, in which case the game is over. But to do backward induction, to think through backward induction, we really needed to consider not just what player two was going to do, were he to get to move, but also what player two would think player one would do were player two to get to move and were to choose left. Right? So all of these redundant moves were actually part of our backward induction. Right? We need them there so we can think about what people are thinking. All right, so backward induction tells us that the outcome of the game is down. All right, but it tells in terms of strategies Player one chooses down, and were she to get to move again, would choose down again. And player two chooses right. All right. Now let's analyze this game a totally different way. We now know what the strategies are in the game. Player two has two strategies, left and right. And sorry, player, player two has two strategies, left and right. And player one has four strategies, up, 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 down, down, up, and down, down. All right? So let's write up the matrix for this game. All right, so here it is. It must be a four by two matrix. Player two is choosing between left and right, and player one is choosing between her four strategies, up, 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 down, down, up, and down, down. And we can put all the payoffs in. 
So up, up, left gets us to here, which is 2, 4. Up, 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 right gets us here, which is 0, 2. Up, down, left gets us here, which is 3, 1. Up, down, right gets us here again, which is 0, 2. And down, up, or, uh, down, up gets us going right out of the game immediately, so we're going to go to 1, 0. And in fact, that's also true for, up, for down, up, right. And it's also true for down, down, left. And it's also true for down, down, right. right. So all of these four strategies at the bottom started off by player one choosing down, in which case the game's over. So once again, in this matrix, you can kind of see the redundancy I was talking about. Right? In this matrix, the third row, the down-up row, looks the same as the down-down row. Everyone's happy with that? All right. So when we've had matrices in the past, how have we solved the game? Right, we've been doing this uh, backward induction stuff for a couple of weeks. But prior to the midterm, if I'd simply given you this on the midterm, what would you have done? You'd, just gone, you'd looked for Nash equilibrium, right? So how, let's do that. Let's look for Nash equilibrium. So if player two chooses left, then player, one, player one's best response is up, up. And if player two chooses right, then player one's best response is either down, up, or down, down. All right? Conversely, if player one chooses up, up, then player two's best response is left. If player one chooses up, down, then player two's best response is right. If player one chooses down, up, then player two doesn't care because they're getting zero anyway. And if player one chooses down, down, then again, player two doesn't care because they're getting uh, zero anyway. All right? So the Nash equilibrium in this game are what? So one of them is here. All right, so that's one Nash equilibrium. So one of them is down, down, followed by right. Okay? And that's a Nash equilibrium we actually found by backward induction. Right? The, the Nash equilibrium down, down, right corresponds to the one we found by backward induction. All right? But there's another Nash equilibrium in this game. The other Nash equilibrium in this game is this one. All right? That's also a Nash equilibrium. And what does it involve? It involves down, up, and right. Down, up, and right. Sorry, down, up, and right. Down, up, and right. All right? So what, what, what happened in that equilibrium? Player one went down, which made everything else kind of irrelevant. Player two played right. And player one, in their, in their plan of action, was actually going to choose up. All right, say it again. Player one, in fact, went down. Player two, had they got to move, would have chosen right. right? 
and player one, had they got to move it this second time, would have chosen up. So how can that be a Nash equilibrium? It doesn't correspond to backward induction. Right? In particular, player one, player one up here is choosing a strategy that seems silly. Right? They're choosing up rather than down, which gets them two rather than three. Right? So how could it possibly be that that's an equilibrium strategy? Right? The reason is, the reason it can be an equilibrium strategy is it doesn't really matter what player one chooses up here from player one's point of view because it's never going to be reached anyway. As long as player two is going to choose little right here, as long as player two is choosing right, it really doesn't matter what player one decides to do up there. From player one's point of view, it doesn't make a difference. It isn't reached anyway. All right? So we're highlighting here a danger. And the danger is this. If you just mechanically find the Nash equilibrium in a game, you're going to find people choosing actions that, if they ever were called upon to make them, are silly. Say it again. If you just mechanically find the Nash equilibrium in the game, just as we did here, you're going to select some actions, in this case an action by player one, that were she called upon to take that action, would be a silly action. And the reason it's surviving our analysis is because, in fact, she isn't called upon to make it. All right. Now, to make that more concrete, let's take this to an economic example, this same idea. All right. So what I want you to imagine is a market. And in this market, there is a monopolist who controls the market. But there's an entrant who is thinking of entering into this market. Right? So right now, this market has a monopoly in it. Right? And the monopolist is an incumbent. Let's call him Inc. And there's an entrant who is trying to decide whether or not to enter the market or whether to stay out. If they stay out, then the entrant gets nothing and the incumbent continues to get monopoly profits. So think of this as three million a year. All right. If the entrant enters, then the incumbent can do one of two things. The incumbent could choose to fight the entrant, by which I mean charge low prices, advertise a lot, try and drive them out of the market. He could pay very competitively, in which case the entrant will actually make losses and the incumbent will drive her profits down to zero. Conversely, the incumbent could choose not to fight. If they don't fight, then they'll simply share the market, and they'll, mo they'll both make, let's say, corno profits or duopoly profits of a million each. All right. So in this game, let's just say again, there's a market there. The monopolist is in the market, and the monopolist is making three million a year, which seems pretty nice for the monopolist. All right. The entrance is trying to decide whether to invade this market. If she invades this market, if she's fought, she's in trouble. But if the, if the monopolist accommodates her, then they just go to duopoly profits, and the entrant does very well, gets a million dollars in profit. All right. Let's have a look at this game analyzed. Uh, first of all, this time, let's analyze it by Nash equilibrium. 
All right, so I claim in this game, this is pretty simple, the entrant has two strategies. Put it straight into the matrix. The entrant has two strategies. They're either to go in or to stay out. And the incumbent has two strategies. They are either to fight the entrant or not to fight. All right. And the payoffs of this game are as follows. Let's put them in. In and fight was minus 1, 0. In and not fight was 1, 1. And out led to the incumbent maintaining mon monopoly profits. Let's have a look at the Nash equilibrium of this game. All right, so the first thing to do is to look at the best responses for the entrant. So if the incumbent chooses fight, then the entrant's best response is to stay out. If the incumbent chooses not fight, then the entrant's best response is to enter. All right. How about for the incumbent? If the entrant chooses to come in, then the incumbent's best response is not to fight, because 1 is bigger than 0. But if the entrant stays out, it really doesn't matter what the inc incumbent does. They'll get 3 either way. All right? So the Nash equilibria here are either in followed by not fighting. You end up with a duopoly. Or out followed by fighting. Of course, the fight doesn't take place. Out followed by, we would have fought had you entered. All right. So these are the Nash equilibria. Let's analyze this game by backward induction. All right. From the incumbent's point of view, if the incumbent gets to move, then is she going to choose fight or not fight? She's going to choose not fight. So the entrance should do what? Somebody? The entrance should enter, because if she enters, she gets 1. If she stays out, she gets 0. So backward induction, backward induction just gives us this equilibrium. All right. Now the question is, what do we think is going on at this other equilibrium? Let's talk it through. Right, so here you are, you're about to enter the market. You leave Yale, you set up your business, and your business is challenging some monopolist or quasi-monopolist like um, Microsoft, say, and you go out there and you put it, you, you're about to put out your new operating system. And you know that your, oper your new operating system will make plenty of money provided Microsoft doesn't retaliate and charge, uh, drop its prices by half and advertise you out of the market. All right. So what does Bill Gates do? Bill Gates, the head of Microsoft, he says, wait a second, before you graduate from Yale and go and set up this company, uh, let me just tell you, I'm going to fight. If you enter, I'm going to fight. All right? And if you believe him, if you believe that he's going to fight, what should you do? You're not going to bother to enter his market. Right? If you believe that you're going to get fought by Bill Gates, then you, then you believe that if you enter, you're going to make losses, so you choose to stay out. And this threat, this threat that, that Bill Gates makes here, is a, it, it doesn't cost him anything. Provided you go out, he doesn't actually have to fight at all. Right? 
That's why it is, in fact, an equilibrium to imagine you staying out, believing that you're going to get fought if you enter. And it is the best response for the guy to fight, knowing that you're going to stay out. But this doesn't sound right. Why doesn't this sound right? It doesn't sound right because you really shouldn't believe the guy who says he's going to fight you when you know that if you did enter, fighting would cost the incumbent money. If you did enter, if he fights you, he gets zero. If he doesn't fight, he gets a million dollars. So this threat that the guy is going to fight you, this threat is not credible. Right? This is an equilibrium, but it relies, it relies on believing on believing an incredible threat. It's true that if, you're, if you think about entering the market that Microsoft is in, you're very likely to get a little email from Bill Gates. or well, it won't be an email because that can be taken to court, but some little threatening remark in your ear from Bill Gates. It's true if you entered into the market that the um, people who build airline, uh, um, aircraft are in, the head of Boeing might pay you a call one day or send someone round. Right? But these threats are not credible threats. Is that right? They're not credible threats because we know that if you did enter, it isn't in their interest to fight. They're making a lot of noise about it, but you know that if you did enter, backward induction tells us they're not going to fight. All right? All right? But now we're in slightly an odd situation. All right? Why are we in an odd situation? Two things. One, we seem to be finding that there are Nash equilibria in games. We found one here and one up here. There are Nash equilibria that are not supported by backward induction. That's the first, that's the first reason we're a little worried here. And the second reason we're worried is even the economics of this doesn't quite smell right. right? For example, if you in fact did enter uh, uh, sorry, if you did in fact announce you were going to operate, uh, you were going to build a new operating system and got a threatening call from Bill Gates, there might be a reason might, why you might actually believe that call. Why might you believe that call? Why might you believe that call? Can we get a, can we get a mic out? Let me, let me, let me, let me try and I'll, I'll do it, I'll do it. So why might you believe a call from Bill Gates saying he's going to beat you up, not beat you up, but he's going to charge low prices if you produce an operating system? If you looks at the if you look at the future revenue streams like for the next 10 years and he consistently gets 1 million dollars for the next 10 years he would be better off if he just drove you out of the market for the first year and then get 3 million dollars for the next 9 years. All right. Well, I, that, yeah, okay, that wasn't quite what I was thinking. Of. You, you, okay, it's true if we if we cheat a bit and make one of the okay. So what you're saying is uh, I could get 3 forever versus 1 forever. Assume these are both present discounted values of future future cash earnings, all right? So we've done we've done the we, we we've done the future cash flow analysis of this, right? So this isn't an accounting mistake. <laughs> all right? Not for accounting reasons. There's some other reason why Gates when Gates threatens you, you might want to believe it. Let me try up here first. He can afford to make an example of you so no other people will invade. Right. Right. So one thing that's in Bill Gates' mind is he's right now he's thinking about competing with you, right? But down the road, 
there's a lot more of you guys coming, right? There's whatever it is, 280 of you in this room, and there's another 280 in next year's class, and so on. And Bill Gates knows that each of you might come out and threaten his monopoly, in, in, uh, his Microsoft monopoly. And he, he might think that by setting an example to one of you, he might be able to keep the others out. And somewhere, that kind of argument, the argument of making an example of somebody, is missing here, missing completely. But it's got to be important, right? It's got to be an important idea. All right? So we're going to come back and spend the first half of Wednesday's class picking up that, uh, just precisely that idea. <laughs>